Are you someone who enjoys a good glass of wine but is never sure just what to get? Indulge your inner enophile and take the guesswork out of wine by signing up for the National Review Wine Club. All of our wines are selected by a team with more than 150 years of collective experience buying, judging, and making wine. We weed through the thousands of wines out there to select the very best of the best and deliver it straight to your door, all at an unbeatable price. Not only that, the Wine Club is also a great way to support our valuable conservative journalism here at National Review. A portion of every order goes to helping us grow our team and editorial impact, and there's no time better than today. Our introductory special delivers four of our hand-selected wines straight to your door, for only $29.99. So head over to nationalreviewwineclub.com today and get ready to kick back with an exquisite bottle of wine in the comfort of your own home. Bienvenidos, that's California for welcome to the January 30th edition of National Review's Radio Free California podcast. I'm Will Swain, president of the California Policy Center. You can find my colleagues and me at CaliforniaPolicyCenter.org. You can find my friend and co-host David Bonson right here. He's an economist. He's the host of the Capitol Record podcast and author of the book, Full-Time Work in the Meaning of Life. He's also founder of the eponymous investment firm, The Bonson Group. Hello, David. Hello, Will. How are you, my friend? I'm exquisite. Thank you very much. How's the uh, how's the book uh, tour going? This is the last podcast we'll be doing where uh, the book is still in pre-release. By next week, the book will be shipping from Simon and Schuster and Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all those things. And so we are literally a week away from release date. It's a very weird thing for an author when. You wrote a book a while, you know, it's been, um, I started writing over a year ago. It took me four or five months, but I submitted a manuscript by summer. And then just the process of editing and readiness and all the stuff that goes into it. And then also supply chain stuff is still not back to total normal. So it's just kind of weird having such a long delay between when I feel like I was writing it and it coming out now. But as you get to this moment, the day that the books the, uh, arrived, couple weeks back um i was quite excited and now uh, next week as it, as it gets ready to come out i'm quite excited this more so than most of my books i've believed in and loved all the books i've written the message the mission but this book is just a real passion for me this topic and uh i'm excited for it to be out there and see if anyone else resonates with it or if it can have any kind of impact i really believe there's a lot of sad people in the world and i hate people being sad I hated being sad back when I was used to be sad. And I think that my book has a message that is all at once the only thing that our economy needs and the primary thing that can ad address sadness. Um, make the connection for us. Sadness, full-time work. Yeah, I think that work is uh, presented today um, very often in secular culture and very often in religious circles as well as a cause of what plagues us, alienates us, stresses us, makes us anxious, this burden, this curse. And my view presented in the book is that we have it entirely wrong 
that work is what produces telos in our lives, which is purpose. And that purpose is where we get the energy and the uh, drive to get through the day and instead of just survive through a day, thrive. And I believe that this is all true because it is the very way that God made things, that he made us for the purpose of work and production uh, to pr go uh, produce out of the raw materials of the earth is the great joy of our lives. Now, of course, we also get to do these things in concert with other great joys, companionship, friendship, um, beauty. You know, there, there's a lot of things that go into a, a flourishing life, the good life, shalom. I, I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable with all sorts of different synonymous nomenclatures uh, out of the Jewish language or Aristotelian language. Um, I, I prefer human flourishing as the basic concept. And that's to me what human flourishing is, is when one is tapped into a purpose and then accompanies those things with meaningful relationships and experiences in their life. And um, I do not believe any of that can be done without work. And I'm tired of us acting like it can be. And I'm tired of us acting like it should be. And I'm tired of us going through economic hardship that could be solved if we would up our game productively. Well, we're going to uh, extend your book offer, your very generous book offer, for at least another week. So uh, I'll just remind listeners that if they'd like to receive a copy of Full-Time Work in the Meaning of Life by my friend David Bonson, uh, send us uh, a, a some kind of evidence that you have rated and reviewed the show wherever you download the show. Just a screenshot will do. And, of course, include your name and address. Um I've had to do a, a number of email back and forths with uh, a few backs and forth, back and forths, um, exchanges with a number of people just uh, getting clear on what's your actual name, not number sign at hashtag something. So uh, include your name, address, where you'd like the book sent, and uh, evidence that you have rated and reviewed the show. Dave, we're going to talk about full time. You know what we here. did not say, Will, though? And I Please. just want to point out that I've seen you know dozens of these reviews come in and we're sending out the books or we're going to when we receive them. Um, so that if you haven't got your book yet, by the way, it's only because my office, which is going to be sending them uh, as a, a gratis gift to these Radio Free listeners who we love, um, we will be receiving them very shortly and then they'll go out. But I just want to point out, we did not say that the review needs to be five star. Every person's review has been five star and really very kind. And I assume authentically so. But if you hate our guts and want a copy of my book, that's fine. Although, if you hate our guts, what the hell are you doing listening to this show right now? Well, Will, it's possible they only hate your guts. That's This is true. And they love they, you. They could love my guts. Give us a two star. For, for me and a negative three for you and then want my book. I mean, no, I think we all know that the odds of that happening are very, very low, especially if any of our listeners are in the John Sutter lineage. Oh, my gosh. We have John Sutter for everybody today. Um, and, and here's the reason, David, we have John Sutter today. Um, Vladimir Putin's uh, irredentist ambitions are on full display again last week. Uh, the... Uh, uh, we, we call him Russian president. I guess that's his formal title. Uh, it used to be that in the media, you could count on everybody to describe an unelected dictator as strongman, strongman Muammar Gaddafi, etc., strongman Vladimir Putin. But we call him Mr. President, I guess. And um, 
He said, uh, let me, he, this is according to the Russian state news agency TASS. Putin signs a decree one week ago to allocate funds to the Russian Department of Foreign Property of the Administrative Directorate of the President of the Russian Federation. That's a hell of a title for an agency. To cover, quote, the process of searching the real estate property owned by the Russian Federation, the former Russian Empire, the former USSR, as well as for due registration of property rights and legal protection of this property. Uh, unclear if Putin had his sights set on Alaska, Fox News reports, but the Institute for the Study of War, the American think tank, uh, which I absolutely adore and follow closely, they noted Friday that a prominent mill blogger, that's a military-aligned al blogger in Russia, responded to the decree by implausibly calling for Russia to start enacting the law in Alaska and throughout a significant portion of Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, and Central Asia. Uh, so, um that, of course, brings us back to uh, Putin, who says a couple of years ago that, um, you know, the, uh, the the sale of Alaska and uh, settlements in North America by Russians in the 19th century, all of these things must be looked at more carefully. And that takes us back to Fort Rus, or as most of us know it, Fort Ross. Um, and that takes us, of course, to John Sutter. So let me, David, if you'll indulge me for just a moment, I promise I'll make it painless for you. Well, maybe painful for you, but less so for others, I hope. So recall that John Sutter beats it out of Switzerland in 1833, sets out for the United States just ahead of debt collectors, and he tramps around the western frontier, sails to what are then called the Sandwich Islands. We know those as uh, Hawaii. And he arrives in the Sacramento Valley in 1839. He's lured there by the Mexican government's promise of land grants to anyone who will, A, swear an oath of allegiance to the government in Mexico City, and B, can promise to secure the land from hostile forces. They don't mean, in Mexico City, Native Americans necessarily, although that too, but also other really predatory European powers, as the Spanish see them, or the, the Mexicans, rather, including Russia. So Sutter takes the deal. It becomes a Mexican citizen in the summer of 1840. One year later, the Mexican government grants him 49,000 acres around what would later become Sacramento, land that Sutter calls New Helvetia. Uh, Helvetia being the, uh, the goddess, basically, of liberty, the symbol of the Swiss Confederation. So now he styles himself Don Juan Sutter. He builds a fort in the land with equipment he purchases from, drumroll please, the Russian-American Fur Company outpost at Fort de Rus, as the Russians had called it since 1812. Uh, by then, however, the Russians are suddenly focusing more intently on more proximate European threats and by the difficulty of scratching out a living on the remote California coast. So they offer to sell Fort Ross to Sutter for 30,000 bucks. Well, Sutter doesn't have the money, so he secures a deal from the Russians by using his Mexican land grant as collateral. The Russians sail back to Moscow, but paying off that debt nearly destroys Sutter. He turns immediately to farming and building. He is disassembling Fort Ross and moving everything he can up the river to his place in Sacramento. But drought follows by is followed by biblical rain, is followed by more drought and yet more rain and flooding. What today, of course, we would call climate change. This is 1840, 1842. Uh, this crushes his farming ambitions, his ranching attempts, uh, political instability leading up to the war with Mexico. That's 1845. The breakout in 1846, just a few years after he's bought this land, the Bear Flag Revolt and independence from Mexico. None of this is helping Sutter. 
And then that is followed by the discovery of gold. So within one decade, all of these almost like, you know, biblical curses uh, out of Pharaoh's Egypt hit poor John Sutter. He's got this uh, tsunami of squatters just camping out on all of his land and digging around all over the place looking for gold and he can't scare them off. So by 1848, 1849, uh, with the Russians suddenly back leaning over his shoulder, uh, asking, where's the money? Sutter sends for his son in Switzerland, who's also named John Sutter. John Sutter Jr. sizes up the situation quickly. When he arrives, he carves up his father's land grant and sells the divided lots to settlers at fire sale prices. And he uses all the proceeds to pay off the Russians, who then finally disappear. Meanwhile, Sutter turns around and sells off what's left of uh, Fort Ross, which he had paid 30000 bucks for to the Russians. He sells it to investors for eight grand, and he moves up the Feather River to a farm he calls Hawk Farm. Bad luck finds him there, too. In 1865, the farm burns to the ground. Sutter devises a new plan. He and Mrs. Sutter will decamp to Washington, D.C., living there while Sutter lobbies the U.S. Congress. You can think about him uh, tramping the halls out there. He's, by all accounts, a gregarious and charismatic guy, but his lobbying produces nothing but expenses. He's begging Congress to give him 50 grand to pay him off for the war with Mexico supplies he ostensibly provided and damage done to him and by uh, gold rush settlers. So long story short, uh, Sutter, who always claimed to be broke because it fit his lobbying needs, was actually doing quite well. You could tell from his abundant black backup plans, and they all suggest that he had reserves enough. In 1868, he and the missus moved to Lancaster, PA. They build a fine brick house and live there peaceably until Sutter's death in 1880. And then a couple of years ago, after the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2022, February 2022, a high-ranking member of the Russian parliament asserts that his country should reclaim all territories, including Fort Ross, which we might remind the Russians is paid off, at least uh, as far as we can tell. Uh, and then last week, we have somebody from the Fort Ross Conservancy saying, quote, all of this reminds me that America does not have a monopoly on crazy politicians. It's not even worth talking about specifics. It's just noise. So we managed to get John Sutter into the top of our list this week. Thank you, David, for your patience. Um, David, we've talked a little bit about the Super Bowl coming up. Do you give a damn? Well, look, I mean, there, there were two teams I wouldn't have minded seeing win, and both of them lost in the conference championships. I think... It, it, here's what I, 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 while things being equal, would rather see Kansas City win San Francisco. I mean, I really loathe San Francisco every ounce of breath in my body for a lot of reasons. But um, it's a disappointing thing that we're here where both Baltimore and Detroit lost behind, I don't mean like a bad call, like a coach took a risk and it didn't work. I mean the worst coaching imaginable. Uh, just inexplicably bad coaching performance that really cost both their teams um, a, a path into the Super Bowl. The Lions had that game won, and they did everything they could to give it away, one player in particular, and there's a lot I could go on and on. I feel bad for Detroit. They were really right there. And it's one thing if they got all the way there, and then they just weren't good enough and they lost, but they they really should have won that game and, and it was taken from them by bad coaching. And then Baltimore, best running team in the NFL, ran like six times. They had run 30 times a year, a game all year. And I just don't, it's it's kind of sad. But look, Kansas City's playing great. Um, 
Can I, can I tell you something I didn't end up getting to talk about on Fox this morning? They had said they wanted me to, to go on it, and then it ended up going into a later segment, and I was off the show by then. Do you know that Vivek Ramaswamy is saying in interviews on television and being totally serious that the game is going to be fixed, the fix oh. is in, that Kansas City is going to win the game, and it's all being done in concert with the Biden administration and Taylor Swift to announce a Taylor Swift endorsement of Biden, right? As her boyfriend's team, Kansas City, uh, wins the Super Bowl, and that this is the establishment desire to keep Trump out of office. And he's saying this totally seriously. So I want to say to my conservative friends if we can't be better than that, we deserve to go extinct. Because that's the dumbest I've ever heard in my life. Hey, you know, just when I think that guy can't go any lower, uh, he always surprises me. I must say he is disruptive in that regard. He always, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, underperforms. Just I, I just think he's just hit hit rock bottom and he somehow finds a shovel and goes farther. But I think. People, so many people, though, I think it's intellectual or it's sociological. This guy, it's just purely moral. He's just an immoral dirtbag that that he that because I think there are a lot of crackpots out there that believe stuff. Right. And and honestly, I don't I don't think I've always shown the Christian grace and charity I should. But I've always had a little tug of empathy for the people that are just so disconnected from reality that they believe some of these crazy conspiracy things. Vivek doesn't believe any of this bullshit. He doesn't believe any of it. He just is saying it to cater to the craziest of crazy. And and I'm I really am more disturbed by things like this than like some of the terrible policy things out there or some you know what I mean? Like I I it's just totally unseemly and I believe that the right spent a lot of time, you know, properly caricaturizing the nuttiness that existed with the Noam Chomsky's and some of the far left wing loony bins out there. And for us to have them now in our camp and they get stage time with the presidential candidate and they get debate stage time and they're treated like serious people. And he's and he's just a charlatan, a total grifter. And it's disgusting. You've done a tremendous uh, reader service because my whole point in bringing all this up was out of sympathy for people who, like my wife, love a good Super Bowl party, absolutely do not understand the game of football. Um, I got stories I could tell you about the kids playing football and the wife cheering madly, not understanding a damn thing that's going on, but loving the cheerleaders in the band. And if the rest of the crowd erupts in joy, she does, too. Um, but this is the reader service that I want to provide. You've already allowed people to have one great cocktail sort of conversation moment in saying, hey, did you hear about Vivek Ramaswamy? He says the fix is in and Biden's going to make sure the Niners don't win. There's one point. There's a great story out of CBS Sports. Um, so I would recommend that I'll put it in the show notes. And it's from CBS sports writer Cody Benjamin, and he offers such wonderful lines, I think, that our listeners can take into any Super Bowl party and just drop like you know a thing. Um, how about this one? Niner, you know, the Niners general managers really crafted an all-star lineup. It pairs nicely with Kyle Shanahan's schemes. So, you know, you put these on little note cards, I think, and you pull them out of your, you know, your handbag or your 
coat pocket or whatever. You know, Brock Purdy just came out of nowhere. That dude is an NFL great. Uh, another one, you know, Christian McCaffrey, he's likely to be the game's MVP. And didn't he go to Stanford? I really think I enjoyed him there. Uh, these are all things that you would never utter, David, in a million years. You hate the Niners. But I think just as a, as a matter of um, support for our listeners who may be called to go to a game and want to know how to root for the California team, there you go. Um, I do find it fascinating that the Niners call their their boosters the faithful. This is a big thing. I don't know if you saw the sort of after party with uh, the Niners getting their, what was it? I guess they get, they don't get the Vince Lombardi trophy. What the heck do they call that? The, um, oh, Chicago Bears, George Hallis. I think it's a George Hallis award when you win the NFC championship. And it was, you know, McCurdy, I'm sorry, McCaffrey and Purdy, both of them saying, you know, like all glory to God. Purdy said of the Super Bowl, win or lose, I'm going to glorify God. David, these are your people. Yeah. Um, and uh, the idea that Joe Biden would screw over a team from the Bay Area, that hardly seems likely, Vivek. Um, more likely to go after a red state like, I don't know, Kansas. Um, meanwhile, staying in the Bay Area, Nancy Pelosi says Russia and China are behind pro-Hamas demonstrations. Uh, she put some money on Sunday's game, by the way, as long as we're talking about football, betting with her friend Michigan Representative Debbie Dingle a few dollars that San Francisco's 49ers would beat the Lions. She won. And then in a less publicized pregame event Sunday, wearing a 49ers jersey and scarf, it looks like she's coming out of the out of her home in the Bay Area, uh, surrounded in her driveway by some pro-Hamas demonstrators that she climbs into a totally murdered-out SUV. Um, in video that is captured on X, I couldn't find it anywhere else. I'll put it in the show notes. She tells the demonstrators, go back to China where your headquarters is. Uh, just a few hours before that, she told Sunday on CNN that some pro-Palestinian protesters are connected to Russia. So um, Nancy Pelosi starting to uh, reveal the deep, deep fractures and her impatience, I guess, with some progressives. Um, she said on CNN, we have to think about what we're doing and what we have to do is try to stop the suffering in Gaza. But for them to call for a ceasefire, that's Mr. Putin's message. Make no mistake. This is directly connected to what Putin would like to see. This is lefty thinking, David, by the way, uh, when Nancy Pelosi says who would benefit from the things these pro Hamas people are saying Vladimir Putin would. Therefore, he must be behind it. We have seen this story before with Russiagate. David, what are your uh, any thoughts here about Nancy Pelosi? not especially um <laughs> it, i don't know it it does seem to me that she has come across a little more co of all these 80 something year olds that we have in leadership positions with from biden to mcconnell to um uh who's our senator in iowa uh chuck grassley uh she's up there in that age group and she has always seemed to me I mean, just, you know, obviously off the chain left left wing, but not quite as uh, aged as some of the others. And, and now I'm just starting to wonder if she's kind of losing it. Um, yeah, I, I um, I, I, yeah, I, I, I am I am I struggle to figure out what to make of Nancy Pelosi sometimes. But I do think that this reveals sort of the old school uh, Democratic, you know, kind of mainstream centrist. You know they're they're pro-Israel, uh, right? But the problem them. is that they see like I would be heartened to hear any Democrat saying this, right? Like I'm just a hundred percent with her. The problem is she'll turn around like the next day and say something totally different. That's right. And and I also think politically, I don't think she under, I don't think she knows 
that the party's not with her. Like I honestly, because of the point you make, it's such a new thing um, that anti-Semitism has become so prevalent uh, with younger people. I don't think the Democrat Party has anti-Semitism that is prevalent from people ages 45 to 85. I think it's college students that got radicalized on uh, mom and dad's dime. And, and so I think Pelosi is almost just sort of like, Wait, what? I'm supposed to be pro Hamas all of a sudden? Like, like it, it's almost like she, even for a far left leaning, you know, person like her, she's sort of like, what in the hell is going on here? And then, you know, she'll kind of say something different the next day. So whatever. I, I think she seems all at once weird, loony. And in this case, it's sort of sad that she's not in the consensus of her own party. Want to stay up in the uh, Bay Area here. There was a video circulating uh, recently all over the place. A mother and her two-year-old child um, were separated during a carjacking in Oakland last week. And the video obtained by police shows a suspect speeds off with the car with the two-year-old still in it. And then just stops the car in a kind of industrial area and pops the two-year-old out on the street and then just drives away, leaving this two-year-old, you know, bereft of mom and familiar faces. Kind of a terrifying thing for any of us who have a kid or even those who just have an ounce of uh, human sympathy. But the two-year-old is only out there for about a minute when a bus driver stops, helps the child, calls for police, then people in the area come pouring out to aid the kid. Um, But the thing that really caught my attention was Eric Swalwell, our uh, infamous Bay Area, Oakland-based representative uh, in the U.S. House. He tweets out a link to the video, and he says, my wife and I play these scenarios over in our head all the time. We've practiced going out through the back seat to get our kids out of our car if we're carjacked. This is not normal. Soft on violent crime prosecutors are letting too many dangerous people threaten our kids. Well, that caught the attention, David, of our friend Charlie Cook at National Review. He retweets, well, well, with this encouragement. Do let us know when you find out who is responsible. Um, Good old sarcastic, facetious (laughs) Charlie. Um, that's just a quick note. So is this one, David. Sam, the ten- San Francisco toy store that inspired the movie Toy Story, the entire franchise, is now set to close due to rising crime and disorder. Uh, Jeffrey's Toys, which bills itself as the oldest toy store in San Francisco, is closing permanently on February the 10th. The store was owned and run or has been owned and run by four generations of the same family since 1938. I was going to make that our history piece this week. That's an amazing tale. Uh, The co-owner of the store says it's been struggling to stay afloat because of the rise of online shopping, but also because of San Francisco. Open uh, Open drug use on the streets, shoplifting violence. He says one employee quit working at the store after five years when someone pushed her against a wall and tried to stab her. He blames San Francisco's political leadership. We need a healthier relationship with the city, he says. We're putting in our money. We're putting in our hard work. We're putting our love into it. But in this relationship, we have the city that is simply not being returned. David, I'll remind everybody that this is not unusual in San Francisco for stores to close down. We've got uh, Walgreens, Whole Foods, Nordstrom, the whole Westfield Mall, uh, AT&T, Banana Republic, Starbucks, Target, Disney, Anthropology, among other retailers that have shut their stores in San Francisco. But we hear that all of this is exaggerated, David. This is just right wing uh, crazy that there's nothing wrong with San Francisco that time won't fix. 
Well, you know, I was on Fox this morning and they had a big segment about Oakland. And, and it's interesting. I think some of the stories that have come up in the last 24 to 48 hours from Oakland didn't make it into your prep. And you're going more on the San Francisco side of the Bay. But over on the East Bay, uh, Kaiser Permanente is a significant managed healthcare provider. They apparently announced that they are asking employees to not leave the office at lunchtime, that it isn't safe to walk to lunch. There are other companies that have announced they will provide um, security that will walk with people when they go to get lunch. And I think that the um, car theft in Oakland got to be one out of 30. I mean, that's like a, like you figure they're like missing a zero or two, you know, like, I don't know the number, but I would reckon that the car thefts in Newport Beach are one out of 30,000? 30,000, 30, right. I, I mean, I guess there might be more than three a year, but like, I, I just, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, and even if it is, it's people outside of Newport, right? Like all these. Yeah. They're coming from Oakland. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, it, it just, it's, it's gotten to a point of, uh, of uh, cartoonishness. And, and I said this on Fox this morning, and there's a clip on, on our, uh, that we've circulated around a little on social media and YouTube and stuff like that. This is a, a matter of will. I mean, this isn't a thing that we have to take. Like we circumstances have gotten to a point where the 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 uh, you know train has left the station and we don't know what to do. They they've just simply chosen to adopt a policy of tolerating crime, of allowing crime, including violent crime, and and you can interview people um, all over the street that uh, are saying you know this includes minorities and women. Like it is not rich white guys saying i'm scared in oakland it is uh black owned businesses with with female african-american customers that are saying i i can't go there it's too scary and so forth this um from a first of all just kind of declarative sense of our nation's ideas of life liberty pursuit of happiness you you got when your employer is saying you don't go to lunch it's not safe like look i would say is the best practice for almost every city because of what I happen to believe about what happens at three in the morning, I would say to most people, don't go walk the streets at three in the morning. And that's not because like, um, I think it's okay for unsafe things to happen, but I just don't think anything good ever happens after midnight and three in the morning <laughs> is just, you know, the odds go up no matter where you yeah. are, bad things. But you're talking about like a, a, a reputable, significant business, just flat out saying, don't go get a turkey and cheese sandwich at noon in the broad daylight because it's not safe and everyone's like okay okay yeah well i i don't even know what to say man i just don't even know what well, to say at, at the risk of being redundant here i think what's fascinating is to watch how uh, I, I'll, I'll just call people like reggie jones sawyer uh the la area state assembly member who's also on the reparations commission who has consistently opposed any attempt to raise the bar for public safety and really get cops into the streets and give them the freedom to, to, to satisfy their responsibility to stop bad people from doing bad things because Joan Sawyer and others like him believe that any crime and punishment initiative is really just about penalizing African-American people. And he loves to ignore, as progressives typically do, the other side of the equation. Everything's a trade-off, Thomas Sowell tells us. 
And the trade-off here is, sure, you can stop the police from arresting uh, people because they might disproportionately, in a place like Oakland, be represented by black uh, suspects. But the fact is, the victims are also black, David, as you say. Um, and, you know, if, if you have any desire to get the hell out of California because of this stuff, the L.A. Times, uh, an L.A. Times editor has asked you to just please keep your mouth shut. This is L.A. Times letters editor Paul Thornton writing in the paper this past weekend, David. He said to the people leaving California, may the road rise to meet you as you seek better lives in new places. Now, can you please extend some goodwill to those of us who remain behind? If you want to leave, fine, but don't insult California on the way out. Um, I guess it hurts his feelings. Uh, but what's really remarkable about this piece, David, is he does not, this guy, uh, Mr. Thornton, does not seem to recognize the inherent contradictions. He says it's, you know, part of this might be he admits that he's really sad to see what has become of California. Um, but in defending California, he cites the kinds of people like, say, Pete Wilson and Prop 187. He says, you know, that's a, those days are gone, thank God. But those were the days when crime actually began its long-term fall in California with Pete Wilson and other conservatives who could still get into statewide office. Well, yeah, but hold 90s. on. Well, I think I don't think you meant to connect those two things. Pete Wilson and and policies and crime went down. Yes, but Prop One Eight Seven and crime going down. Prop One Eight Seven wasn't implemented. No, no, no. I'm just saying okay. this guy attacks Prop 187, says, you know, Republicans destroyed themselves and made themselves laughing stocks nationwide because of this yeah. racist policy. And just to back up a bit, Prop 187, of course, is as Pete Wilson created it. Uh, I think this is 92, 94. Uh, Prop 187 basically said, look, if you're if you're here in California legally, you have no claim on state public services. Public services are for citizens only. Well, the left went nuts. Uh just campaign vigorously to say, look, Pete Wilson's a racist and he hates Latinos. Weirdly, Latinos and everybody else in California voted overwhelmingly for this. This thing, this initiative on the ballot uh, passed, uh, I think it was 60 percent. Uh, but here's Paul Thornton saying, see, there's a thing that California has swept behind it. Those are the bad old days. But then he goes on to say that when my family came here back in those days, Everything was better. The streets were safer. You get a job. This place was a hopeful and a good place. In other words, I guess what I'm 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 probably mixing too many uh, subjects here. But the, the the my point is, he goes back to the good old days in order to say California was once great, but then cast them immediately as terrible because Republicans actually had an option to control some of these statewide offices. Um, and he's the guy who brings up Prop 187 specifically to say, like, look, you know, we're just a pro-LGBTQ, easygoing, lefty kind of liberal place where anything flies. And, um, you know, we're just really tolerant. But boy, those Republicans are terrible people. So my, my point is only that his failure to to attach the, the, the sort of the correlation between a guy like Pete Wilson on the one hand, uh, yes, who did write Prop 187, which did pass and which was then killed by a California court, a state court. Uh, this is this is what the left has thrown out. You know, they have they have absolutely danced on the grave of the Republican Party. And more recently, maybe the party deserves that. Yeah, there, for a lot of reasons. I'm sorry, I made that into a pig's breakfast for us, David. I meant merely to say that I don't buy the idea that Californians who are leaving are leaving without reason. Um, so anyway, speaking of Prop 187, our friend Carl DeMaio, um, has put out a new ad. He's running for the state assembly out of San Diego. 
And he's got a 30-second ad. Here's from Politico. It's titled, Governor Pete Wilson was right. The homage to Wilson, shared first with Politico, represents a stunning break from the party's softer immigration messaging since Wilson left office. So, David, uh, you're a, I think you're a student of Prop 187, if I'm not mistaken. You have talked about this a great length sometimes on this very show. So, um you know, if you if you listen to what Carl says, he's just saying like, look, you know, the Prop 187 that Wilson authored was a really good thing. It makes total sense, especially when we look down at our southern border. It's a mess. We've got Texas in a standoff with the Biden administration. We got the Supreme Court intervening. We got the Texas National Guard down there. Meanwhile, California is a sanctuary state handing out free benefits to all kinds of people who have absolutely no legal claim to be here. Uh, but Gavin Newsom hasn't let that stop him. So Carl is just arguing that, uh, you know, we we ought to revisit the days when Prop 187 was first in, in, initiated and really recognize that that was the right idea, not this idea we currently have of just handing out anything to anybody regardless of their citizenship status. Well, I haven't seen the actual ad. Um and so I want to be careful because I don't want to end up commending something that I may end up having a little bit of beef with. And I don't want to condemn something that I may be in agreement with. Um, I most certainly agree, Will, that the concept in Prop 187 of not creating a magnet with the welfare state as a means of creating incentive for immigration, um, that th that was a good idea. That There was good policy in not exacerbating the incentives for illegal immigration. I do not believe that was the primary cause of illegal immigration. I do not believe the primary cause was to come get welfare benefits. Um, I think that uh, I've written at length about the multicultural um, mistakes that uh, people coming to the country and not being asked to assimilate and being encouraged to not assimilate, and um, native-born Americans being shamed for expecting assimilation. I think that these are the real big problems. And if all one is pointing out, like Carl here, that there is a, um, a problem in the welfare state producing benefits with taxpayer money for those who are not paying into the system, I am against the welfare state for native-born Americans and therefore especially non-native-born Americans. That isn't super uh, controversial. I don't know. I don't know the language of the ad, the tone of the ad. I don't. I don't think um, you know for someone who wants to protect the border and as and have a sensible immigration policy as I do. I just. I, I think sometimes some mistakes get made in the way it is presented. Um, but we're not in a political environment. We weren't apparently in 1994 either to have an honest conversation about this subject that um, the majority of people coming, you know, like we don't want terrorists coming in and we don't want uh, fentanyl coming in and we don't want uh, people lying about asylum seeking. And, and uh, I'd do anything to stop all that. And I think we have it in our power to stop it. But do I want to think of a family that is coming in for opportunity in the same degree and rhetoric of criminality as the rest. I do not. No. Now, people, people say by definition they're criminal. 
because they're not coming in the legal way. And, and I grant that, but it still begs the question as to what the policy ought to be. 187 to me was really focused on not creating an additional magnet. And I think if Carl, that's all he said in the ad, then I, I agree that you, you do not want to produce a welfare state of benefits for illegal immigrants. But I don't believe that that's the primary challenge we've had over the last 20, 20 or I guess now 30 years. One of my favorite moments in the uh, Politico story comes when the reporter turns, I'm just going to say kind of lazily to um, um, Mike Madrid. I, do you know Mike Madrid? Famous uh, or infamous Republican consultant who almost invariably comes down uh, on the Democratic side of the uh, political spectrum. Uh, he tells Politico that DeMaio's ad is California's version of saying the South shall rise again. Well, um, there you go. That's the kind of thoughtful response that is really going to get us towards a better policy resolution yeah. because it's so intelligent. It's so helpful. So when I uh, texted uh, Madrid's comment to Carl, who, of course, had already seen it, he texted me back this endorsement. Carl DeMaio wins endorsement of Latino American Political Association. That's a 50-year-old uh, organization in California. It is nonpartisan, neither left nor right. Uh, the group says Carl DeMaio has been a longtime champion of educating and in involving Californians from every walk of life in the political process. We're confident he'll continue to pave the way in the state assembly for getting Latinos engaged in the fight to reform California and make it a better place for all. So, um, you know, th this is one of those things that when I was on the left, it was deeply troubling to us that we could not get Latinos to understand the importance of opening up the border and letting in all their quote unquote, relatives in. That's how we saw it on the left. That, oh, these are all people of the same color from roughly the same national background or ethnic background. They're all going to want the borders down. Not true at all. Uh, folks in the working class really saw unlimited immigration as a challenge to their standard of living. They'd come in the right way. They'd followed the law. They had built a fan, you know, built their their business, built a home, and then there were other people coming in and and, and competing with them at a far more aggressive and lower level. Anyhow, um, hey, let's get up to um, Scott Wiener and the Wiener Watch here, David. Uh, Scott Wiener has introduced a new bill that will require uh, cars to come equipped with a speed limiting device. Uh, the, let's just keep in mind that the highest speed limit you'll find anywhere in the U.S. is 85 miles per hour in Texas. Uh, in many states, including California, drivers cannot drive legally over 70. So why do we manufacture and sell cars that can go faster? State Senator Scott Weiner says no good reason for us to be able to drive faster than the posted speed limit because faster speeds kill people, and he's got this solution. He wants to require automakers to equip new vehicles with speed governors, devices that will restrict how fast people can drive. He says the tragic reality is that a lot of people are being severely injured or dying on our streets in San Francisco and throughout the country. I love the segue from San Francisco to the country. And the problem is just getting worse. In fact, uh, Senator, the problem is far less bad than it was when I was a kid. And the equivalent of the Vietnam War casualty list of 55,000 Americans dead at the end of the war was true every year for cars. Cars are much safer. But that's not the main point here, David. The main point is that there are good reasons for allowing cars to go fa far faster than the uh, posted speed limit. We can talk about some of those. But uh, any Thoughts first on your part, David? I, I wish I did. I, I, I kind of don't. Okay. I, well, you know what? You know what? I, 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 well, is there something wrong with me that like car stuff has never really? No, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. I know how to change. I used to know how to change the oil in my car. 
my new uh, car, I can't do that. Have you ever changed a tire? Yes, many times. I'm oh, very good at changing times. tires. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. I was one of those guys who used to drive around if I saw, you know, particularly a damsel in distress, even if she were an older damsel, I would pull over and just help, you know, because this is in the days before you had cell phones and it might be raining or dark and you didn't want somebody stranded out there on the road. So, you know, little 19 or 30 year old me would pull over and help the person change their tire. Um, but, you know, this this reminds me, David, I like to revisit the Chesterton's fence argument here that Scott Weiner apparently has no idea why the fence, in this case, why the why cars can go faster than the posted speed limit, why that exists. So I went, I dug around and I found this great piece by a KTLA TV consumer reporter. And he writes that, you know, first drivers are given a safety margin for emergency situations that allows them to pass other vehicles safely to accelerate quickly when they need to, like to avoid collisions or escape dangerous situations. And he points out by making cars that can go 125, 120 miles per hour or faster, there's less strain on the engine at lower speeds and that improves fuel economy. Uh, third, less impressive to enemies of global markets. Some countries have very few restrictions on speeding, so automakers try to design their vehicles with broader appeal. The most obvious example is Germany's Autobahn. I have driven on the Autobahn a couple of times. It's, uh, I'll say, thrilling, close to uh, the exhilaration you experience probably when falling out of an airplane. Um, so my, my point is there are good reasons to have cars that go faster than the speed limit. Scott Weiner is not the guy I would trust to understand that. Um, not a guy for whom there is any limiting principle on just about anything. Well, the only thing I'll say is that, um, again, as someone, I don't, you know, have this big need for speed, as they say. I don't care. I mean, I, I just care about statism. And this is just simply not something that the state needs to intervene in. And if they, if he wants to come show the data of how many people have died because of people going 120 miles an hour, um, then he can do so. But we both know it's going to be so infinite, in, in, tiny, minuscule. I can't ever say that word. Infinitesimal. Infinitesimal, isn't it? You're so close. Infinitesimal. I'm missing a syllable. Yeah, so, sorry. Tiny. So, we, you know, uh, why don't we take the energy and resources into like actually legislating how cars are made to better enforcement about what really kills people in an automobile, which is alcohol. Mm. I mean, just in terms of data, just real, yeah. actual data, instead well, of gonna, making stuff up. But here's some rule of thumb for whenever a politician says to know if a politician is full of you know what. When they say, and I want to quote what Wiener himself said about this. Uh, hold on real quick. Ba 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 ba. It's perfectly reasonable. It's very reasonable. The ideas come. When you have to start pleading that something is so clearly reasonable, it means it's not reasonable. Hmm. Rule of thumb. <laughs> Ever reasonable Scott Weiner. See, I was going to say that if he really wanted to stop killing an injury, he might just actually enforce the law on the streets of San Francisco. Um, but, you know, you know, you know how much uh, you and I are willing to put our our um, our opinions on the line to protect human life. We were actually against them keeping bathhouse houses open with uh, monkeypox going around. That's right. We so were almost alone. <laughs> I'll put my record up on safety versus Scott Weeders anytime.
I love it. All right. Um, so, David, here's, uh, as promised, the story that I really wanted to get to. This is uh, your entree, if you will. This is uh, from the Sacramento Bee. The headline is, Can California State Employee Unions Protect Civil Servants from Crackdowns on Telework? Mm. She writes, Maya Miller does, the Sacramento Bee. She writes, Two California state agencies have publicly announced plans to bring workers back to office twice per week. I want you to remember that part, David. The governor's budget also includes a plan to eliminate the monthly work telework stipends, a small yet symbolic sum of money, to help offset the state's $70 billion deficit. Um, so, David, I crunched the numbers. It is a relatively small number, but, you know, it's that like that old joke, you know, a million here, a million there, and soon you're talking about real money. If 50%, the, the estimate is that about 50% of the state's 216,000 workers are working from home with this new telework stipend that's about six or so million dollars per year um but unfortunately as uh, maya miller points out uh, the unions are playing hardball uh ted toppin executive director of the professional engineers in california government agency uh he writes he he told her our members are frustrated and they find this mandate totally unnecessary we're gonna fight it with all our might and that means advocating with the administration from the governor's office on down Another uh, person, uh, the president of the California Association of Professional Scientists, says the return to office call from Cal EPA is out of touch. A slap in the face to scientists who've been out of a contract for nearly four years. Uh, there's definitely power in numbers, she said. This is something we can all get behind and unite around. So unions don't want to go back to the office, David. Oh. They like working from home. They like being paid to work from home. They like uh, not having to go to work in the office. That's different than saying they like to work from home. We have no way of knowing that they're working from home because they're at home. No accountability. I don't know that they're working from home. I just think they're at home, getting paid to be at home. You know how a boss knows when they're working? When they're at the office. <laughs> uh, when they're in the classroom. When they're at their point of work doing their job. So this is uh, the union's um, battle cry in all things. Uh, more perks, less accountability. And it's uh, uh, just totally, completely unexcusable. And it's happening at the same time the private sector is overwhelmingly rejecting the uh, uh, work from home. Uh, today, IBM came out, announced a bunch of big restrictions. UPS has now said to their corporate people, not three days, not four days, not hybrid, five days a week, or you're fired. Um, I've been running an ongoing list of all the companies that at one point set, flexed and said, oh, yeah, we're never going to make anyone come back. We're going to be for uh, bedroom work in your pajamas for the rest of our lives. Uh, the amount of companies that have walked that back is monumental. Uh, but here we are with the, I, the California Association of Professional Scientists. How do you join that union? Uh, uh, you graduate from a Cal State school. I kid. I'm sure they're all very nice people, except for the union leadership. Um so, uh, David, let's turn to the last story that we've got here, and that is uh, the headline from Jonathan Lansner's column in the uh, Southern California News Group. That's the uh, Orange County Register, L.A. Daily News, etc. Lansner writes, uh, here's his headline, California suffers largest job growth drop in the U.S., and he has documented a 54% cut in California's job creation between 2015 and 19, on the one hand, in between 2019 and 23. 
Um, he says California's job growth was essentially cut in half by the coronavirus and the state's reaction to the pandemic. I'm glad he points that out. It's the state's reaction, not the virus itself. Um, so he says uh, if COVID-19 never happened, you might assume that uh, California would just come busting through in this period afterward and uh, be adding loads of new jobs. It has not. It is still not cut off with uh, the rest of the nation in terms of uh, job growth. Well, and it's not going to, and and uh, the the data and the argument he makes is compelling. Uh, I continue to remind our listeners that the fundamental challenge goes back to Gray Davis in the late '90s uh, when we became such a technology-heavy economy, and yet of all the different opportunities, including ones that have been in the state for 60, 70, 80 years, from entertainment to media uh, to biotech to natural resources. Um, that di- California did everything they could to to undiversify the economy. And this is the real issue of job growth, is that we became fully re- uh, dependent upon real estate, which, which we know what happened to the economy during the uh, financial crisis of 08, and then on uh, technology, Silicon Valley, and we know the cyclical nature of what's happened there. And I believe that what happened during COVID is that you had a reliably progressive left-leaning constituency that was not progressively left-leaning for the same normal reasons. They tended to be uh, high left on environmental issues and high left on certain but not all cultural issues, abortion, uh, gay marriage, things like that, but had a particular streak of civil liberties that was somewhat unique. And I'm referring, of course, to venture capital, tech, dot-com, that kind of uh, demographic. And a hell of a lot of those people went to Denver and Austin and Salt Lake City and other cities around the country that were unfathomable 25 years ago because they didn't have the culture. And now they do. They have the bar scene the clubs, the coffee shops. They're just kind of cool towns for younger people near universities. There's a great talent uh, 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 pool and those jobs have left. And that was really what the, the so what do we, what do you think is going to uh, keep the jobs going now? What is that? What is the industry that's saying, I got to go to California? Every movie in Hollywood is made in Toronto or, or Asheville, North Carolina. Right. Okay. So what is it? What what is the sector? They can't drill for natural gas anywhere. Um, I don't know what these people think, other than just the mega gazillionaires. I don't know what they think is going to generate organic economic growth and job growth in the state of California, and I don't know if they care. Yeah, and I would add uh, just a couple of obvious points to that, and that is, um, you know, Assembly Bill 5 effectively kills hundreds of thousands of small businesses. Uh, those people are leaving the state and or are forced into employment in large corporations that can afford the kind of marginal additional cost to full-time employees or full employees. Um, there's Sacramento. You know, now, well, did there's something I haven't wrapped my arms around. I want to understand better on this AB5. In mm-hmm. New York, I think that there was some comparable restrictions in the city that were done against food delivery. And I just want to make clear for anyone listening that doesn't live in a city or hasn't been in New York, if you every now and then order DoorDash for your family, it's not the same thing like in Irvine, California, as it is in New York City. 
Like you're talking about thousands of people that every night have food delivery come into their apartment. Like, let's put it this way. DoorDash actually makes money in New York City, okay? It does not mm. make money in suburbia. Low margin, thin, just pretty much a crappy business. So now there's a new thing where you can't tip on the app. And I'm a big tipper because I, I just believe in karma and stuff like that. And, and uh, you know, I feel so indebted to these guys that right the weather here is not always great you may have heard you can google it if you don't believe me <laughs> and these guys riding their bikes in the snow to come bring me uh, a kale salad which is as anyone knows is what i've been eating throughout january of 2024 Ooh. um i want to tip them well and you can't tip on the app until after it's delivered because then they have to compute what their wages were for the hour and then determine what the tip eligibility is because they're trying to uh, comply with a, min a minimum law, a minimum uh, requirement of what they get paid. And, and again, it's a little different than the independent contractor classification. But my point is New York got around the law by basically restricting the gratuities until they can compute the whole hourly. And then once they've gotten that hourly, then they can get the excess on top. This is the kind of, that's not good for the drivers or the delivery people. When I say drivers, they're on bikes, you know, right? I mean, this thing with California, what they've done, it's not just Uber and Lyft. It is a, a multitude of segments that were affected. And I don't understand how grownups are still so ignorant about unintended consequences. I really don't. Well, I, I think, you know, it's the ignorance is convenient because it's I, you're, you're right. The concept of unintended consequences is quite simple. But the fact is, is that the political arguments become quite confusing for many people. And I think they just look for the flag of social justice in California. They hear somebody like Lorena Gonzalez, the author of AB5, say this is going to protect workers who are being misclassified so they can be ripped off by bad business people. That was certainly Gavin Newsom's claim when he signed the bill. That was Julie Sue's claim when she was implementing AB5. Uh, now that she's at the Department of Labor, as we discussed last week, she's introduced the same, virtually the same idea of destroying independent contractor status nationwide through a Department of Labor rule that will take uh, effect in March. So you've got a lot of people who are very confused by details like this. They, they're they not deeply read, perhaps, into uh, policy papers, um, and they don't understand the simple notion of unintended consequences. Uh, this, is, this is really problematic. And of course... Uber, DoorDash, Lyft, those guys escaped AB5. They paid 200 million bucks to well, run that yeah, statewide. Right. Yeah. So and who was left? I felt, and you know how I felt yes. about that. We discussed it. Yeah, both of us were uh, sort of. But not because say, we believed that AB5 was good for Uber and Lyft. I thought it was bad for them. I just didn't agree with repealing it only for their sector. I just That's correct. Yeah. So when when the smoke cleared, the only people left, you know, exposed to the viciousness of AB5 were independent contractors who were just simply too small to fight back. Um, it's, yeah. it's dreadful. I had, uh, you know, I did an interview a few months back on the show with uh, Karen Anderson of uh, Freelancers Against AB5, and she's compiled a list of 600 different business categories that have been affected. It's just pretty shocking. Um, you know, how many of these other people have been hurt by this drive-by violence um, carried out by people like Lorena Gonzalez, Gavin Newsom, and Julie Sue? Well, David, that's all I've got. Anything left for you? 
Uh, no, we should uh, we should definitely try to get a, uh, a podcast in together next week. I may end up having to miss the one after, but maybe not. I it's going to get pretty crazy, but there's still windows where when I'm traveling we can record. But I know next week we can, and uh, I just am excited and thankful to those uh, uh, listeners that have sent such positive reviews. It really does mean a lot. And uh, you know, Will, you do so much work to prepare for this. I'm thankful for you, my friend. I give you a five star review. Oh, thank you, buddy. And uh, well, I shouldn't say this publicly, but our friendship means everything. So thank you. Yes, sir. Um, I guess I can make a public declaration of affection. Hey, uh, stay tuned though, because uh, we've got uh, my conversation coming up with Lance Christensen on the Parents' Rights Initiative that's out there, Protect Kids California. Uh, an initiative that is now in the signature gathering phase for the November election. And then I uh, had a good talk with Wilson Freeman, an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation. They have sued the Biden administration over this de Department of Labor uh, rule that will take effect in March. That's the AB5 adjacent uh, federal rule. So, um, David, here comes Lance Christensen. All right, with us now is my friend, my colleague, Lance Christensen. He's uh, Vice President of Education Affairs for California Policy Center and also our Director of Government Relations inside the Capitol, befitting a man who spent uh, most of his adult life hanging around with uh, twisted people under the, what do you guys call it? Under the cupola? Is that the, the right word? Under the cupola, yeah. Cupola. Did I get that right this time? I don't use that word. Blah. Got it. And that's the big domed feature inside the state capitol or atop yeah. it okay right. hey lance well uh, glad to have you as ever it's always funny to do this like intro where it, it, i pretend for appearances sake uh, as most radio people do or podcasters like i haven't seen you and i see you all the time or talk to you all the time um we were just getting ready to talk about uh, what's going on inside the state capitol and education issues when I distracted us from warm, when we were warming up here, uh, by talking about uh, one of our listeners who emailed me that he lives in a town on a street called Mormon Island Drive, which took me to Wikipedia immediately because, of course, I know of your uh, deep interest in and knowledge of Mormon history in California, which is so significant. I'll try to find the. Uh, show that you and I, where you and I discussed all that. But Lance, as soon as I mentioned Mormon Island Drive, you got this just absolute vision, uh, it appeared. Tell me, what is more, what was Mormon Island? So Mormon Island was actually a part of, before Folsom Lake was Folsom Lake, it was, yeah, you know, a river that went through uh, right above Sacramento. And of course, um, the men at Sutter's Mill had John Marshall and others had already discovered the gold. What a lot of people don't know, at least outside Latter-day Saint um, lore, is that most of those guys were from the Mormon Battalion. They had marched the longest United States uh, Army march, or the longest march in the Army in United States history from basically Iowa to Southern California, um, uh, you know, Fort Tejon and then up. And when they got done, they didn't have to really fight anything. Uh, no, no Mexican battles between um, United States and so this is within the war with the the war with Mexico. So yes, we're talking yes, eighteen forty five, eighteen forty eight. So yeah, sorry, I don't mean to back up too far, but they're coming across the point, right? They had literally been kicked out of the United States. They had been pillaged and raped. Their houses had been burned. The property had been stolen. These are the um, Mormons, not the Native Americans. Mormons, yes, no. So they cross over 
um, get into Council Bluffs and Iowa. And I'm abbreviating the history for a Latter-day Saint history experts who know more about this than I do. Or I'm getting details, you know, back and forth. But they come across, they camp. It's not a really good time. And some of these guys decide to go because they're itching to get over, you know, out of the persecution of the United States. And so some are leaving as they're going. Greg May has this meeting um, with the general in the army. It says basically the president. I think who was it? I can't remember now. Was it Buchanan? Second. The U.S. president? Or are you talking about I the think president? It was Buchanan, Latter-day yeah, Saint. who said basically, sorry what happened to you guys, but now we need you to help defend the country we're kicking you out of. Um, and some people take issue with my uh, my terming it being kicked out of, but literally they had no protection from either the state government. Tom Ford, the governor of Illinois, had basically told Joseph Smith while he was in prison before he died, listen, tough luck, I'll do what I can to protect you, and he took off. And so the blood of his hand uh, of Joseph Smith really lies at the, the feet of Tom Ford. Uh, Lillian Boggs, who was the, the governor of Missouri, who issued the extermination order, as he will remember, um, who, who became a California legislator years later and died in California. There's a whole bunch of ironies here about this, this story. Um, so the Latter-day Saints are coming across on on these wagon trains, or actually pulling handcarts, most of them, and Brigham Young comes to them and says, listen, the United States will pay us money if you go fight for the United States that will fund our going across the plains to get out of this place. And, you know, so these guys signed up, and a whole bunch of them signed up, and they took the money that they were going to use for uh, clothing and uniforms. They gave it to their wives. And most of the, the Mormon train on the Pioneer Trail, a lot of those people at that time, it was women that moved the handcarts. The women and the children took this mass migration with a few men that left were left behind, at least in that, in that portion of, of the trail. The trail goes on for decades. Like, it's not just one, one and done. There's a lot of iterations. So these guys marched down. Uh, they're expecting they might have to fight. It gets really crazy. One of the commanders dies in the process. Um, you have guys like uh, uh, Jefferson Hunter or Hunt, excuse me, um, who makes his way down there. He becomes one of the first uh, legislators in Utah and then also in California. Um, he's a polygamist. He settles. He and others settle much of what is San Bernardino right now. So. They make their way up. The more battalion makes their way up to L.A. Then they kind of disperse at that point in time. And a lot of these guys made their way then to Sacramento or to Sutter's Mill. And so if you think about it, it's in Coloma. It's a small little town up there off the American River. They're mining. Uh, and they're not really mining. They're kind of doing stuff. But they they discover gold. Eureka. I've found it. John Marshall. So they go back to Brigham Young and they say, listen, the gold is in California. We should be there. And Brigham's like, no, 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 no. We should be here. This is the vision that Joseph Smith had. This is where I've seen the vision. This is the right place. So you he's know, saying all of that stuff. He's saying stay here in Utah. Correct. And Correct. these other guys are going, no, 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 no. We got to go west. Yes. And and again, remember, this is all colored by an experience that Brigham Young had as he's coming in um, to this area. He meets the famous, the very famous Jim Bridger. Um, a frontiersman, somebody who knows the area really well. And in June 20th, 1847, they meet at, you know, kind of, uh, it's present day Wyoming, but as they're there, they're riding to Fort Laramie um, and Brigham Young is leading this group. 
Jim Bridger gives him a huge description of what's going on in the area, talks about, um, you know, Fremont and his maps, where Fremont got it right. Fremont had connected the Great Salt Lake with the Utah Lake as one continuous body. But if you look at them, they're two separate lakes. Utah Lake's a freshwater lake. It feeds into the, to the Great Salt Lake. And then the Jordan River is behind it. Um, so you are between, excuse me. And so he also says them, the Indians actually grow good stuff if you go down south. But that's if you go south of Utah Lake, and where you are right now is that near the Great Salt Lake. He said, I would give you a thousand dollars if you could grow an ear of corn here. And so that kind of became the lore there. Like that there's no way that that they could settle this. So you've got these guys again going back and forth saying, Hey, we can't grow anything. There's not really any water here. There's not really any place to to take care of ourselves. So part of that going back and forth was they would hit Folsom, the Folsom area. And that was kind of became a, a halfway point for a lot of them. Uh, there's the famous stories of Oren Porter Rockwell. This is the guy you've got to read about. He's amazing. They call him the uh, the Avenging Angel. Um, he was Joseph Smith's best friend since they were teenage boys, and he kind of became this this Samson um, character who had a rough life, didn't quite live as you would think he should. Um, but he was Joseph Smith's strongest protector and used to fight people. He was his bodyguard for many years. And there are, there's a lore that he killed many men in defense of his people and, and, and those kinds of things. And Joseph Smith said before he died, I promise you, Orton, if you do not cut your beard, um, that you will not be basically killed mm. and you'll be protected his whole way through it, which is true. But Orrin was also known for a little bit of drinking and uh, you know, Latter-day Saints, it's not something we do, but he actually establishes a tavern not far from Mormon <laughs> Island in that area. And so there's a lot of Wait times where a lot I, of- I just want to I want to recap and really briefly, we have a guy who is like Samson from the, the Old Testament uh, yes. who is promised that his strength will never wane as long as he continues to grow this magnificent beard. But this guy likes to fight. He likes to brawl. He's a drinker and such a drinker that he goes pro and starts his own bar. Yeah, is a that- few of them, actually. Yeah, but in this California. one up near, yes, in fact- if you're driving over the hills from Folsom to El Dorado um, Hills, you will see there. there's a marker off the side where the tavern used to, where one of the taverns used to be. But anyway, people would come into the area. And again, this was not like uh, the, the American River as it was coming through, which creates, you know, the Folsom, Folsom Lake. Um, that's where people would mine. And so when Folsom Lake is down, I'll have to invite you up sometime. When Folsom Lake is like empty, you can see all of the baseline of the cabins mm-hmm. and all the pilings of rocks that existed uh, when it was just a mine area. And it is amazing. And that was Mormon Island. Now, that's all underneath water. And so the people that developed it up, there's um, there's a street you should go up the hill a little bit, which is the, the Mormon Island. I know this because I used to live in that area. It's beautiful mm-hmm. country. So anyway, long, fun story, but people forget California history is Latter-day Saint history and Latter-day Saint history is California history. It's just, there's so much to talk about. And so I know it blows a lot of people's minds and they don't like to talk about it. And, and, wait, wait, who, and who are the schools and like? other places. Well, I oh. mean, have, has anybody ever heard these lessons in their uh, California history classes? We do the fourth grade in you know, the Spanish missions appropriately enough, right? We should talk nonstop about um, father Sarah and all of that. That is all very important stuff. But I will guarantee that 95 out of 100 
uh, California history teachers do not spend one moment talking about the Mormon influence of the state. Wow. So fascinating. Okay. So um, I could talk about that for several more hours, but let's uh, let's can. move on. Lance, we will later. Let's do it. Well, as soon as uh, we're done recording here. Um, but I wanted to talk to you today about uh, a number of issues. Let's start with uh, the new petition that is uh, where, where people are trying to gather signatures for a new petition, which is called the Restricts Rights of Transgender Youth. Um restricts the rights of transgender youth that's the name of the initiative lance why would we support an initiative i know you do and i do why would we support this crazily named initiative well because i help write it (laughs) (laughs) Um, loyalty to you is not our only reason for support no i know um we're not talking but tell me about the let's let's talk about the naming how did yeah let's go back to the naming so we have a guy um the attorney general rob bonta who has taken the idea of naming what, what they call giving title and summary to ballot propositions of things he doesn't like and twisting the name so that it doesn't represent reality. And so it actually, you know, uh, prejudices people against this thing. This is not something that Rob Bonta came up with, right? This is not uh, original to him. Um, the the but attorney general of our system, the attorney general Javier Becerra did this a lot. Yes, Kamala Harris, when she was attorney general, did this a lot too. And even before, we had others who were Republicans as well did this. So it's a very political and prejudicial system we have to give the attorney general, who's an elected officer of the state, and who is responsible to defend any of these laws of the state to to change this now we have several ballots uh, in the past where you know title and summary got weird um this one seems to be really weird because what it does is it does a couple things so the the title has to be short has to be like a a short sentence then the summary is less than 100 words and it will also incorporate part of what the legislative analyst does so the legislative analyst says okay it's going to cost this much money to implement this ballot initiative and the LAO did a decent analysis. This is a long analysis. It's it's probably a dozen or so pages. They go into great pains to talk about different things. Uh, but in the end, that what they'll do is they'll have like a short snippet where they say, okay, this will cost or save the state money. And the LAO says that this will save state money. They downplay it for different reasons, but it will save money. But the attorney general then has to take all that legalese and summarize it in um, you know some sentences. And instead of being honest about it, because this ballot initiative really is three different parts, he decides he's going to go for the part where he thinks can ruin the credibility of this ballot initiative and show that the proponents of this uh, initiative um, are haters. And so it's it's something where legalistically, I think he lost his way. Um, It's not impartial. It, 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 It is prejudicial. Um, it doesn't accurately then describe what the ballot shift does in, in, in two places. Well, One is we get there, just if you would tell me, yeah. well, we're going to get to what the ballot does. But so the title at, at present, um, there are some people who are, who are considering a lawsuit against Bonta to retitle this thing. And that seems completely legitimate. Once you understand what the petition, what the initiative would do, uh, Bonta gives it the title restricts rights of transgender youth. What would you have called it, Lance? Um, I would have called it the Protect um, the Protect Kids Act. Very simple. Because um, this this thing, what it does is it really takes the responsibility we have as parents 
and it codifies it a little bit more. Um, because what, I mean, it's a whole, whole longer story about our history of civilization, about parents having ultimate, you know, decision-making authority and sovereignty over their families and children. We have not codified a lot of parental rights or put them in law because it's just everybody knows it. It's like water is yeah. wet, right? Yeah. You don't have yeah. to go and describe water as yeah. wet. Yeah. Well, or in California, salt is you salty, might, yeah. right? But in California, you do. And a lot of people didn't see this coming, but this all started back really heavily under a few bills, SB um, 43 by um, Mark Leno in 2011, where he basically said, listen, we're going to really now force the LGBT uh, agenda on everybody. So that then to the side through the curriculum process. And then you have another bill by Tom Amiano, a very, and these are both very aggressive um, activists, uh, progressives from San Francisco. And in the assembly, Tom Amiano was a fire thrower. And he has a bill, uh, AB 1266, which basically says, listen, we want to allow for kids that, that desire to play sports and, you know, from one gender or another to play those sports, to access the gym and the locker rooms of such. There's not that many of them, so we should be kind and nice and whatever and let this happen. And it will be a rare circumstance, right? Um, well, that was, you know, in 2013, so about a decade ago. And in the last five years, we've seen an acceleration in this process. And because of that, you have an attorney general who's decided to take the side of rabid activists who want to take and strip away the rights of parents. Thus, he's taken this ballot and in, in title or title and summary and completely give the, the proponents of this thing. Yeah, it seems to me that the better title might have been something like, uh, you know, Parent Rights Act, but um, yeah, parents or kids are being protected by this initiative, which would do three things. It would repeal the California law that permits students to compete in female sports. That is to say, it permit repeal the California law that permits students to compete in female sports and students to be in female locker rooms and bathrooms. I think what that means is if you're a if you're a boy and you want to go into the girls locker room under California law, you can do that. Um and this would repeal that. It would prohibit schools from deceiving parents about their students' gender identity crisis, and it would stop sex change operations and chemical castrations on minors. Three, three things. Um, so, Lance, um, let's let's talk about you, know, you and I have talked about this a lot offline, but you know it's remarkable. And David and I have discussed this in the podcast. It's remarkable to me that Title IX, which was introduced into U.S. federal law legitimately and reasonably and responsibly, I think, to create a space for women to participate in in athletics, uh, to, to be treated as the equals of boys and men uh, throughout their student experience. And where athletics is concerned, you know, we can quibble about, uh, you know, how this is funded and et cetera, et cetera. But the bottom line is creating a female space that is safe is no longer considered reasonable enough. So that era of sort of first wave feminism perhaps has been overwhelmed by whatever wave we're in now, fourth or fifth, in which there really is, you know, we can't, we can't uh, define what a woman is. And therefore, why not let a guy who, a, a student who appears to be a boy and has a boy, had a boy's name and has other superficial characteristics associated with being a boy we're going to let uh sam become samantha and go into the girls locker room and play in a girls sports team despite the fact that he's you know a head taller than everybody else or whatever um but you know that's just one lance you know th these these issues are 
always right on the edge. If you read the mainstream media, you know, this is always called forced outing. The, this, the other idea that parents shouldn't know what is up with their kids in terms of their gender orientation, however fleeting that may seem through puberty. Um, but um, we've got, you know, the forced outing rhetoric constantly in the mainstream press, the L.A. Times, the Sacramento Bee. And where does that start? It starts with these activists. It starts with these politicians who pass these bills and then is just conveyor belted into newspapers in the quote unquote mainstream as if it's really true that this is, you know, the parents pose the greatest threat to their children. Uh, if the child wobbles on his or her gender and a, and a dad or mom finds about it, that child, Bonta says, is in danger, not just of murder, but perhaps of suicide, uh, because it's just such a terrible thing to have your parents know about what's going on for you. So anyway, Lance, that's the kind of the, the ballpark description of it. Uh, take this where you will. I'll keep it short because we have talked about this in the past. I think people know where we stand. We have been working really hard since last year. I didn't envision that 2023 would be the year of parental notification policies. It wasn't on my bingo card. I thought that we'd be talking about school choice and other things, which we do, but also focusing on legislature and, and some of the fiscal problems that I knew were coming uh, along with the more boring stuff that think tanky people do, right? But when we had this parental notification policy and we couldn't get it heard in the legislature, we decided to take it to the 944 school districts. All of a sudden, the left understood something. They figured, like, they're like, holy crap, the, the, the right has figured out our game plan. We have been infiltrating these schools for so long. They figured it out. We can't let this stand. We can absolutely not let this stand. So they have, they have taken parents and villainized them. And so you've got the parental rights issue, parental notification piece. But then you also have these stories, and I was just reading one this last week that's that Canadian swimmer, the 50-year-old man that's now swimming on a teen girls team and changing their locker rooms. Um, I made this point about a month ago, too. Before I had seen that story, I didn't know that story was there. But um, I, I wrote a pretty provocative statement on Twitter where I said, just so you know, dear California you know, voters, it is legal in California for, a 50, for an adult male to change in a girl's locker room. And I had... I mean, the left's head just it heads exploded. I, it was probably one of the most like explosive tweets I've ever done. It made its way around the world a few times. And the, the comments there were like, you're putting this out of context and whatever else. Well, no, it's actually absolutely legal, and it has happened in California. But now we're taking this whole idea where is it anything like is, is there any truth in anything like or sex or like we're in this post truth world. And it's problematic. And we've got to figure this out. And if we as adults cannot protect our children, the state sure isn't. You know, I mean, you just have to read about Sparta and, and Rome. Uh, when people, <laughs> this whole meme about men thinking about Rome all the time, I don't think about Rome all the time, uh, necessarily in a good way, because it fell because we absolutely gave up on our children. And because they decided that, you know, fealty to men's desires was more important than other things. So you've got all of this stuff going on, and I see the same correlations in California. And who's going to stand up for these kids except for parents, right? And so I have decided that it's become my life work to do everything I can to make sure that the kids are protected. And so between this and, and other issues, I think that it's going to be a very interesting um, year. 
we're watching as people are coming to grips with this issue and the polling on these three components of this ballot initiative are off the charts high. I mean, they're, they're in the high sixties and low to mid eighties, yes, depending yes. on what CPC's, you ask and who you ask. Yeah. CPC's own research shows that, uh, you know, uh, as you move from left to right, right through independents and even, you know, Democrats, moderate Democrats are wildly in favor of the notion of parent rights. Uh, trying to head that off, of course, Rob Bonta and others talk about forced outing and harm to kids and, uh, you know, this. Yeah, by the way, this quote, quote unquote, forced outing. How is that anything forced when they go to school and everybody at school knows? Right? Yeah, right. everybody at school knows. And now you're 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 compelling these teachers that they have to lie to parents. That's one unconstitutional. It violates the 14th Amendment. The Supreme Court's written on this about a thousand times since 1923 in a very famous case, which you talked about um, with uh, Jacob Hubert. Um, but there are a lot of these components that even the far left get. I can't tell you how many legislative hearings I've been on on some of these parental rights type bills where the the women sitting next to me are purple haired you know lesbians from san francisco who look the very definition of everything you think a progressive woman feminist from san francisco would be atheist democratic never voted republican sitting next to me and saying lance we know who you are and we agree with this your policy on this like 100 we're all in because getting back to your conversation about title nine originally we made law to make sure that women had equal access to sports. Mm -hmm. And now we're stripping this away. And when boys are playing on tennis teams or swimming with them or on basketball teams, you know, we have the six foot nine guy with the wig on or grew his hair long in a training bra, you know, playing as center in a girls basketball league. Like, honestly, come on, come on. Like, it's just ridiculous, you know. Now and then we're going to have Tigress Woods playing the, you know, the the women's professional golf league. Uh, again, I think we've got to come to a realization that we have passed parity now, and we're in the absurd. And so I'm hoping that uh, things will happen. But the the opponents of this ballot initiative, good friends of ours, Aaron Friday, Scott Davison, Jonathan Zacherson, Jay, uh, Jay Reed, the primary people that are running this ballot initiative, they need to get 550,000 signatures. And they have figured out a way, it's legal, to print out a ballot and sign it. Now, you have to do it appropriately and make sure you declare everything on the, the paper. But if you go to protectkidscalifornia.org, you can learn more about this. But unless they get 550,000 signatures or the money to collect those signatures, you and I both know how difficult this kind of process is. Yeah, it is very easy to you know write a write something like this an initiative I, and you know I, I should say very easy it's the kind of thing that people can do. You know, we have done this ourselves at CPC with school choice issues. And you can even get it through title and summary with the AG. It'll come out twisted, torqued, uh, misrepresented, of course. But it's the signature gathering, that gathering of almost 600,000 signatures that is so, so arduous. Um, you know, you have to have, have primarily an army of volunteers stand outside supermarkets. I think the last time I saw this run really successful was in the Gavin Newsom recall campaign, uh, where it, a citizen army of you know, probably... That was, I'll just say, thousands of volunteers organized by, among others, Mike Netter. Um, and was it Orrin 
Heatley, is that right? Yeah, Orrin Heatley. Yeah, we're the yeah. two primary guys driving yeah. this. But there was a, yeah. Yeah, there was a number of other leaders. Of course, yeah, yeah. All these things take countless hands. Uh, what's the old saying? Uh, Many hands make light work. So um, if we have donors out there who are interested in supporting this, they can go to uh, Lance. Where do they go to here to find more information? They go Protect Kids California or ProtectKidsCA.org, and uh, they can download the petition right there, and they can sign it, share it with your friends. If you're interested in donating, donate there. They really, they need the funds to make this work. This is one of those few areas where I think it is absolutely essential that we get this on the ballot. It usually costs millions of dollars to do this because the signature gathering is so expensive. But the more people we can get the volunteer sort of signatures to make this happen, that will work. Once it's on the ballot, this passes. Like there's just no way this does not pass. And so um, if you if you want to, and you're from another state, you can support this too, because as goes California, goes the rest of the nation. Mm-hmm. And this issue is not just staying here in California. It's actually there are studies now showing how how um, you know deep this runs in in other states and in California. If you can shut it down here, you can shut it down in every other state. Period. End of story. And so I think that's what they're trying to accomplish. This whole thing. Lance, I'd like to talk about lots of other things going on inside the Capitol, but we have run out of time because you and I indulged my uh, deep, deep and abiding interest in uh, Mormon Island. So thanks for that. And uh, we'll get you back on real soon. And of course, I will probably talk to you within minutes. Uh, thanks very much, Lance Christensen, VP of Education Policy and Director of Government Affairs at California Policy Center. My friend, my colleague, thank you, Lance. A group of freelance writers and editors has sued the U.S. Department of Labor. I just love that editors are in that suit, claiming the Biden administration's new rule, making it more difficult for companies to treat some workers as independent contractors, is illegal and should be struck down. The four freelance workers filed the lawsuit in Georgia federal court last week, alleging the Department of Labor rule unveiled a couple of weeks ago is so vague that it violates the U.S. Constitution. The lawsuit is the first to challenge the rule and leading that legal effort is wilson freeman of pacific legal foundation who is with me right now i will hello wilson um let me just do a quick uh overview of your really impressive resume you graduated magna cum laude from uh, nyu school of law in 2011 clerked in the ninth circuit you were senior counsel and policy advisor at the u.s department of labor where you advised the secretary of labor on a variety of issues related to wage and hour laws etc You were a senior litigation counsel for the Arizona Attorney General, where you argued cases involving federalism and liberty before both federal and state courts. Does this make you very proud? I hope your mother is listening. Um, Now at the Pacific Legal Foundation, Wilson is licensed to practice law in New York, Oregon, and Arizona, and in several federal courts. Um, Wilson, does uh, does that list of places where you're allowed to practice, does that include Georgia? And why Georgia? Well, our clients are the driving factor here. Our three, our four clients, they're uh, all women, independent contractors, freelance writers and editors. Uh, they're all on the East Coast. Uh, one of them, the lead lead plaintiff, Karen Warren, she's in Georgia. Uh, Georgia seemed like a natural place to bring the lawsuit. Uh, so that's why we brought it in Georgia. Uh, you know, it's a federal rule, so it applies across the entire country. We could have brought the case anywhere. Uh, so it made sense to us to bring it in, bring it in Atlanta, uh, where our client resides. 
Well, I've, I've somewhat buried the lead. Um, well, not not entirely, but um, this new labor rule, of course, that uh, mm-hmm. just came out of the Department of Labor a couple of weeks ago. We've talked about this in the show over the course of the last year. And really, since the introduction of Assembly Bill 5 in California here, all of our listeners know AB 5. But for those few who have forgotten, Assembly Bill 5 basically made it very, very difficult for Californians to operate as small businesses as independent contractors uh the whole goal of the uh, of ab5 of course was driven by unions and the goal was shut down these rogue operators who think they can operate outside of employment laws or outside of the large companies that we can easily unionize very difficult to unionize seventy thousand truckers who tend to be very independent uh, equally difficult to find every single graphic designer out there and make sure that he or she is part of a union but boy Force them to become employees, and then suddenly you can subject them to a whole bunch of onerous union union driven uh, regulations in California. And now we have that same uh, that same kind of setup emerging out of the U.S. Department of Labor. Not a huge surprise that something terrible in California, even with baleful results, which we'll talk about, is now emerging out of the Biden administration. When you saw this. Uh, well, well, let me just start this way. When I saw you guys file suit, I thought you had clearly been set up to do this thing. It was like you guys had your, pardon the expression for those who are sensitive, um, but you had your gun fully loaded and you were ready to fire. Uh, it seemed you had, I mean, it is difficult and time consuming to write the briefs. It's difficult to find the plaintiffs. You had all this up and ready to go. It seemed to me within hours of the announcement. I wish it was within hours. It was within days, but I'll take it. I mean, you have to understand the Department of Labor's rule here has been pending uh, for a long time. They put it out in the end of 2020, uh, 2022, actually, is when the notice of proposed rulemaking went up. The whole timeline here is kind of interesting. The rule, uh, as you know, AB5, well, I want to say 2018, 2019, maybe, whenever that came down, mm-hmm. um, you know, that very much restricted the ability of individuals in California to identify as independent contractors. But it had no effect on federal law. And federal law is, of course, sort of the floor under which most state regulations operate. So under so in more so in most state, in fact, even Californian employees are still subject to federal labor law and the federal minimum wage and the federal overtime law. Usually California regulations go above and beyond that, but nonetheless, the FLSA applies. FLSA is, uh, sorry, that's Fair Labor Standards Act. It's the very famous federal labor law, which governs, uh, you know, governs minimum wage and overtime. So after AB5, there was a lot of concern about hey, what's going to happen to independent contractors in other states? My clients, freelance writers and editors who I mentioned are on the East Coast, uh, several of whom are in New Jersey. There was a New Jersey effort to sort of copy AB5. They were terrified that it would lead to the end of their business. So they organized an informal group with others on the internet. Uh, It's called Fight for Freelancers. They they organized this group to sort of advocate against New Jersey law uh, or this this attempted change in New Jersey law and, and other efforts around the country to sort of replicate AB5. Well, that is sort of the backstory of my clients, but the rule here also has a backstory. So along alongside AB5, the Trump administration, toward the end of the Trump administration, they looked at the federal labor law, the FLSA, as I mentioned earlier, and they said, hey, you know, there's no real 
clear definition or understanding as to who's an independent contractor under the Fair Labor Standards Act. You know, we have all these different court decisions and the Supreme Court talked about it in the 40s, but it's really been very unclear. Uh, And in the wake of AB5, everyone's asking, you know, what do I have to do to be an independent contractor if I'm not in California, you know, under the federal law? So the Trump administration put out this rule, uh, which, you know, it's a simple two-factor test, which is very clear and and tells independent contractors that if they have control over the work that they do and an opportunity for profit, they'll probably be independent contractors under the federal law. So the Biden administration comes in, and as you mentioned, you know, unions, major constituency of the Democratic Party, very much interested in this question of independent contractors and what they call, quote-unquote, misclassification. So the very first thing they did was withdraw this Trump administration rule and try to get rid of it. Now, a federal court struck struck down that attempt. The federal court said, hey, you can't just withdraw this rule without a good reason. You know, it was put in with this very detailed sort of process that the Trump administration had used, this lengthy notice and comment process. You need to at least do that and then explain why it is you're doing what you're doing if you want to withdraw this rule. So they were struck down once by a court already. Now, we've been now they've been they've put out their so-called reasoned explanation. It's been, as I mentioned, almost a year, a year and several months since they put out their proposed rulemaking. And now they've come out with this new final rule, which is going to define who's an independent contractor under federal law uh, and under federal wage law specifically. And uh, we think that new standard inadequately explained and unconstitutional and not consistent with the statute. So that's why my clients who, as I mentioned, freelance writers and editors, very interested in protecting their business. That's why uh, we've brought this suit on their behalf uh, in Georgia. I know that's, that's a long explanation, but I I sort of, there's two stories I wanted to tell there. Yeah, that's super helpful, and uh, I'm I'm grateful you mentioned that the Trump administration came up with that rather simple, and I think um, really what's the word I'm looking for? Admirable, admirably simple, and it, it you know just sensible kind of uh, two. What did you call it? A two factor uh, a test. two factor test. That's right. It was a two which two test. is is remarkable when you juxtapose it with. Um, I started to read the Department of Labor rule. And I, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm sort of embarrassed. I started reading and then I started skimming. And at about page 40 something, I flipped through 339 pages, 339 pages. That's what it is. I have it printed out on my floor. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's an enormous behemoth. The Trump rule was was lengthy as well, but not that not quite that in depth. But what's going on here is the standard that they've promulgated is so nebulous and and incomprehensible. I think to illustrate this a little bit, we should talk about AB5 because AB5 provides a really good backdrop for understanding what the Department of Labor has done. Now, under AB5, as your Californian uh, listeners know, or maybe they don't know, uh, they use something called the ABC test to determine if you are an independent contractor. And under the ABC test, an independent contractor has to meet three very stringent requirements in order to be classified as an independent contractor. Basically, it's very hard to meet these requirements. Now, against that background, California has carved out a bunch of what I would call sort of ad hoc exceptions, right? There's there's obviously Prop 22, which carves out, you know, I guess, Uber drivers, and, and there's a bunch of other sort of professions which are exempted 
from AB5. But ultimately, like, if you don't fit in one of those exceptions, it's very, very hard to be an independent contractor in California because you have to meet all three of these requirements. Federal law is very different. Okay. So under federal law, as I mentioned, we're operating the, the background law here, the statute is something called the Fair Labor Standards Act. And it's been in place since the New Deal. It's a New Deal statute, you know, setting out minimum wage and overtime requirements. It doesn't have any exceptions. Okay. Unlike the California law, where, or under like, unlike AB5, where there are certain exceptions where a lower standard applies, the Fair Labor Standards Act, and accordingly, the rule promulgated by the Department of Labor is going to apply to anybody. So even if you are within one of the exceptions under AB5 and you're in California and you're an Uber driver, for example, your role is still going to be generally subject to this, this question under the new rule that the Department of Labor has put out because there are no exceptions. Uh, obviously, there are exempt employees in the FLSA, and that goes to overtime pay and so on, so on and so forth. But that's not the same thing. The FLSA applies to every employee, essentially. Uh, so the Department of Labor's new test is what they call it's a totality of the circumstances test. That means it's a balancing test where no one factor, the Department of Labor says, will determine whether or not you are an independent contractor. Uh, so the Department this, of Labor is this. I'm sorry to interrupt, but is this vagueness please. inherent in? Is it a feature rather than a bug from the perspective of the authors? I think it. I think it is in in the sense. So we can. I can ask that question in two ways. First, they believe or they argue that this is what the statute requires them to do. Now, that's one way in which we think their rule is completely unlawful because the statute. Because what the Trump administration did in 2021 was provide individuals with a clear standard and they weren't acting unlawfully or misinterpreting the statute to do so. So even if the Department of Labor could sort of reinterpret or rejigger their understanding of who's an employee, you know, it has to be they can't be based on this idea that the Trump administration was acting unlawfully. They haven't shown that. And I don't think they can show that. So that's the first question. You know, they think that that the they argue that the FLSA requires a unbounded, nebulous totality of the circumstances test. But then the other thing is, I think that to at least some individuals who and at least some people behind the rule, yes, a nebulous standard is a feature rather than a bug for a bunch of reasons. First, it's going to chill a lot of companies from hiring independent contractors. That's the purpose of it, is to reduce the number of people that can classify as independent contractors. And if I if I could just speculate then, the, the point there would be that the compliance, to prove compliance with the law would be so cumbersome to a company uh, that had determined that somebody was an independent contractor, confronted with this new Department of Labor rule, they would say, you know what, this is really complicated, and we could get caught over here, 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 and here, even mm -hmm. if we think we're largely compliant with the law. Um, that That's how it strikes me, the kind of complexity, yeah. with the old saying, complexity is a subsidy. Um, yeah, I think that's right. I think I think it creates a situation for a lot of companies where they're very uncertain as to what the law requires. I think they have to be uncertain because the Department of Labor says it's uncertain. The Department of Labor doesn't give clear guidelines. They don't give examples that can be applied outside of a narrow hypothetical context. So for for a lot of companies, I think it will chill them or want them to reduce the 
way that they're hiring independent contractors, lest they be exposed to the sort of enormous legal risk that comes with misclassification under the FLSA. And that's the intent. The other thing that I wanted to mention that the rule does by creating such a vague and nebulous rule, again, this sort of six factor, actually, it's actually seven factors, because the last factor just says anything else we forgot. So really, it's this this is seven factor or infinity factor test that the Department of Labor has put out is so nebulous that what it really does is it accrues power to the Department of Labor, as vague laws tend to do. I think it was Justice Gorsuch wrote uh, that vague laws create arbitrary power. And that's what is happening here. The Department of Labor now has, or once this rule is in effect, they will have a kind of arbitrary power to bring enforcement actions. And trial lawyers as well, who can also enforce the FLSA, will have the ability to bring enforcement actions and, uh, or rather bring lawsuits. And the ultimate result of that is going to be a kind of arbitrary enforcement of the law, the accrual of power to the bureaucrats in Washington to kind of go after disfavored industries. And uh, I think ultimately people are going to suffer because of it. You know, a a federal judge in California, I want to say this was um, in the spring, almost a year ago at this point, uh, called AB5. I'm trying to look here. Here we go. Uh, he, He declared that AB5 was the product of corruption backroom dealing pure spite naked favoritism mm-hmm. um you know pretty scathing words from a federal judge yep. i don't it, it did not do anything really to blunt the impact of ab5 and you know i've talked to a number of people who are affected by it out here um and and they they point out the same thing as you did that you know you you get uber and lyft are the original targets uber lyft DoorDash, the whole mm-hmm. gig economy in the silicon valley because it just infuriates uh the bill's author lorena gonzalez who used to and now again does work for the right, a union a union right. lawyer <laughs> yes exactly um just infuriated her to see all these workers out there who were unorganized and in her mind uh exploited or perhaps exploitable as i would argue and um so that bill is, you know, immediately repealed or let's say repealed for the benefit of the people who were the primary targets, Uber, Lyft mm-hmm. and DoorDash. And as the smoke clears at the end of about one year of implementation, uh, it's clear that the only people who are now covered by AB5 are people who are too small, who are under-resourced and cannot fight back. Right. Politically, politically disfavored population. Yes. Basically, or, this is or- the as a progressive friend of mine even admits, this is the sort of stuff that gets a guy like Donald Trump elected. Um, you know, you just see the elitism in this, the arrogance of government telling people, nope, you don't have the right to start your own business. You don't have to, the right to operate part time as an independent contractor. Only we get to tell you whether you can work. It's just it's shamefully un-American. Mm-hmm. Are there, You'll you'll pardon me for taking this to the non-lawyerly amateur spectator's perspective, but I wonder, is there a, can you point to something in, I don't know, the Bill of Rights or the the founding that would say, yeah, this is just not government's appropriate role, never mind 200 years of intervening, uh, you know, bad court decisions. Does this go back to something that strikes you as inherently anti-constitutional? Well, I mean, look, I think it's about freedom of contract. Right. I think it's about the ability of individuals to structure their contractual and business relationships and private relationships the way that they want. Because ultimately, what we're talking about here are my clients. My clients want to be independent contractors. They're not exploited. They're intelligent, capable, 
who freelance writers and editors who have been working as freelancers for years, they want to be independent contractors. Their clients, their customers want them to be independent contractors. So everybody who's a party to that relationship wants to be independent. The Department of Labor isn't telling them or refuses to tell them what it is they have to do in order to classify themselves as independent contractors. All they want to do is know what the law requires, because then they can set up their business so that they won't run afoul of the law. My clients wrote a comment on the Department of Labor's rule here. They wrote, uh, you know, uh, so the Department of Labor, as I mentioned, they put out a proposed rulemaking and it was open to comment. And I should mention, by the way, that the, as the Department of Labor admits, the vast majority of commentators who were self-identified independent contractors opposed this rulemaking. It was supported, mm -hmm. as the Department of Labor admits, by labor unions and, quote unquote, worker advocacy groups, which, of course, is code for union advocacy groups. So, you know, that those were the sort of the sides on this rule, people who want to be independent contractors and people who want to use independent contractors and labor unions on the other side. And by the way, the rule regulates independent contractors. It doesn't regulate labor unions, uh, although labor unions obviously are hoping to benefit from the rule ultimately. So my clients, they wrote this comment uh, on the rule, and it was just a series of kind of rhetorical, but not really questions. What do we have to do to be classified as an independent contractor? You know, you list these six factors. Under each of these factors, what is it we have to do? Or how do those factors relate to each other so that we know when we've set up our business and so our clients can have the comfort of knowing that, that they're working with independent contractors? The Department of Labor neglected to answer almost any of these questions, neglects to tell anybody what the rule requires, neglects to answer the sort of basic question, what do businesses have to do to know that they're working with independent contractors? The, I, I think this is because the Department of Labor, as I mentioned, they believe that, you know, it's the law requires them to use, or they claim they believe the law requires them to use this nebulous, bespoke balancing test. And the only way they can tell if there's an independent contractor relationship is by gazing into their crystal ball and looking at these infinity number of factors and then weighing them in some unspecified way to determine, uh, you know, to, and then they'll spit out an answer who's an independent contractor, but they can't tell you in advance. The only way to tell you is, is looking at your, your particular case, which of course they won't, you know, it, even if your case looks like an independent contractor, the next case might not, might, might weigh the factors differently. So I think, yeah, what we're talking about is freedom of contract, ability to set up a business relationship, ability to know the law. And uh, that's what is lacking here. And that's why, you know, we think this rule can't possibly be consistent with the statute. And it's just not sufficiently justified to sort of pass muster. I'll just uh, observe that uh, this, the labor secretary, the acting secretary of labor, Julie Sue, is the former Labor Secretary of California, who was charged with implementing AB5 and was a huge proponent of it. I mean, she now tries to argue occasionally. You'll see her saying, like, look, I was just doing my job, just making sure the trains right. ran on time. Um, but then, you know, you can find all kinds of quotes at the time where she's saying, like, you know, this is important. We're going to do it. We're going to, you know, this is going to be great for all the workers. And then, of course, she hits the eject button and lands in the Biden White House. Um, right. It's also, I think, worth noting that in that capacity, when she was deputy labor secretary for Marty Walsh was his 
his name, mm-hmm. her predecessor at labor, uh, they took a trip out here to California to sort of give people a sneak preview. I think, you know, that was clearly the intention. They came out to the port of Los Angeles, uh, stood there with a couple of truck drivers who said, yeah, I was independent truck drivers. I was really exploited until AB5 came along. And then I got a good full-time job with these two massive trucking companies over here. And now I'm fully protected. Right. What this meant to me was, uh, you know, I, I said this on our podcast, I think last week, this is a kind of fascism. You know, this is a situation where, and I'm, I don't use that term loosely, but I don't know what else to call it when the government structures relationships that benefit massive corporations who are on side in terms of the politics and who will benefit from corporate concentration from this elimination of their independent competition. In other words, they get greater market share. Some of these larger entities will get much larger market share because they're simply driving out of the market. They're smaller, more nimble, Sometimes I would argue more competitive and more sophisticated, smaller competitors. Um, And it's just ironic that you have unions pushing for a bill that will lead to corporate concentration, even now at the federal level. I mean, you're you're hitting at a topic close to my heart. This is a little bit off off script from from my case. But when I worked at the uh, Department of Labor, I frequently observed that uh, the comments that we received on our rules that. Uh, you know, we tried to sort of deregulate when we were when we were engaged in the Trump administration and attempting to sort of deregulate some of these very complex uh, rules. You know, we would receive positive comments from small businesses and associations of small businesses and freelance workers. And and but we would receive much more sort of guarded, cagey comments from the large companies, the large businesses. I mean, there's no question that you know, when it comes to sort of greater regulation of wages and, and benefits and sort of locking people into, I mean, it's the smaller competitors that are hurt and the large companies, they can absorb the increased labor costs. You know, they can benefit from their economies of scale and, and they can shift things around and they benefit from it when it reduces competition and it makes it harder to enter into the marketplace. So I, I do think that that's, that's a real effect. Uh, you know, and I, I think here it'll be interesting to see. I haven't I I haven't made a study of the question, but it'll be interesting to see what some of the bigger businesses that do use independent contractors uh, like like Uber and Lyft will will do if they'll do anything uh, in response to this rule. I know that there's been a lot of resistance. Uh, for example, there is a lawsuit that was filed against, as I mentioned, the delay rule or the withdrawal rule. Uh, when the I mentioned it was struck down by a court, that lawsuit was filed, uh, you know, by by contractors and builders, I think. So, I mean, again, small businesses, small contractors, associations of such. And those are the ones who are who are fighting back against this because they're the ones most impacted. Big business, you know, they don't want to rock the boat um, and they yeah. kind of benefit from it. So. I want to ask you, and and you know, this is uh, this may be an impolite question, so please feel free to just say you you know you you'd rather not discuss it. But you were in the the Department of Labor at a time when Donald Trump was uh, you know was in the White House. Yeah, that's uh, therefore, right. I think it's fair to say you were in the Trump Department of Labor. Um, I worked for yeah. My my boss was uh, was Secretary Eugene Scalia, who was the Trump appoint who was appointed by Trump. So that's right. Right, and I got a very clear. Um, you know, I, I I love the clarity. I got real clarity that the Trump administration 
really had no beef at all with private sector unions. It was government unions that they were rightly, and I say really, I underscore that, rightly concerned about, saw that as a threat to democracy. And, um, you know, I wondered, you know, this is a bill which is largely aimed to support private sector unions. Is this the kind of thing that, you know, I don't know. How do you explain that? My, maybe my perspective's wrong. Maybe I just don't understand how things operated there. But this is clearly, you know, the Trump Department of Labor rule on this issue was very fair. And it really helped both workers uh, and employers who might hire those freelancers. But it was not a union issue. It did not seem to be a private sector, you know, a Teamsters issue or AFL-CIO, nothing like that. It just seemed to be a really clear sniper shot. Gosh, pardon the language. That sounds violent. But I mean, a very clarifying rule. Um, am I wrong in my assessment of Donald Trump's uh, perspective, you suppose? Well, well, putting aside, I think, you know, whether this is Trump's perspective or or sort of, I mean, this is, I think what you're seeing here is a sort of seesaw nature of some of these economic liberty issues you know when when one party is in power you know it goes one way and when the other party is in power it goes back and forth and I, I think it's very possible you'll see this issue even if we don't win our lawsuit i mean hopefully we win and, and the court decides that we're right and that settles the issue but but if we don't win i think it's a you know it's a fair chance you'll just see this issue seesaw back and forth in, in, a, in a republican administration i think what you need to remember is that th this issue of how you can work independently or work as a as a freelance worker or run your own business this question is one that actually involves a, a bunch of different laws and this front that we're fighting on this flsa this federal labor law front is an important front but it's not the only front we've talked about ab5 so state law is very important in this area and you know there's a bunch of different there's obviously 50 different states and they all have their own different state labor laws and those are, uh, you know, th those can be different and those battles are going to continue. And then there's there's other federal laws. I mean, there's tax law, there's Social Security law, and those have those also have different standards. So so I think that this is and, and, and there's the union law, right? The NLRA, the National Labor Relations Act, which is a different a different standard as well. So and there as well, and I think is ongoing battle over the scope of employment under the NLRA. So. This is a um, this is a wide ranging or wide ranging sort of fight that's taking place over who can be an independent contractor and how you can run your own business. We're fighting one front here, but I think it's likely to sort of continue being fought over the next uh, who knows how long uh, as unions. I think it's really unions who are sort of driving the train here. Try to uh, try to reduce the ability of individuals to work independently and, and call themselves independent contractors. Now I realize uh, I've already taken us over time and I apologize. Uh, suddenly, no, it's not you. It's uh, sorry, man. I'm just so grateful. As long as you'll stay here, I'll talk to you. Um, mm -hmm. I, uh, I, I realize I also haven't done a good job of clarifying California's AB five is a law. That is a law. Uh, this right. is a rule promulgated right. by a government agency. Can you tell us, like, you know, what is to keep uh, the next administration? Let's say it's uh, just hypothetically Donald Trump uh, wins not only a Republican nomination, but is swept right. into the White House again. Uh, can Trump decide, uh, you know, on day one that he's going to simply just reverse this back to the status quo ante? Well, obviously, I, I think that depends a lot on what courts say about this rule and about, uh, you know, about 
in about any future rule, right? I mean, ultimately what we're talking about here, I've mentioned several times, is something called the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is a law. Courts interpret laws, right? But agencies can also interpret laws. I mean, they have to interpret the laws that they enforce, especially. So what's going on here with this rule, the Department of Labor is saying, here's our interpretation of the law. The question is, is that interpretation valid? Is it consistent with the law as understood by courts? I think depending on what courts say, yeah, we could just, uh, you know, the, the next administration, if it's a Republican administration, could completely reverse course and go back to the rule that was issued in 2021 and say, well, now we have a new, we're back to our old interpretation of the, of the Fair Labor Standards Act. Uh, you know, this this sort of ties into, uh, you know, the, the Chevron debate as well. I mean, you know, obviously this is not, we don't think it's a Chevron case, this one, but, but in that debate, there's a lot of question about uh, agencies interpreting laws and, and the extent to which this sort of seesaw thing that happens creates instability and, and creates problems for regulated parties. Um, I think you see some of that here. Um, but uh, this, I don't think that, not to say that this is a Chevron case. We don't think, we don't think this is a Chevron case, but, but, uh, you know, I think it's in the background. Some well, of the that, debates that, that were being had in Roper Bright. Yeah, that conversation about whether this is Chevron uh, could take us into some interesting directions. We'll hold that for another time. But I do wonder, can you give us just a quick uh, chronology? What's the timeline look like going forward for you? Sure. The rule was put out in early January. You know, we challenged it within a week. Uh, our lawsuit is pending right now. The rule is scheduled to go into effect in March. Uh, at this point, the ball is in the court for the Department of Justice. They have to respond to our lawsuit um, you know, when they respond, we'll see what happens. My hope is we can resolve the case relatively quickly. I mean, you know, no litigation is is ever super quick. Uh, but, you know, if we can, re we'll try to resolve the case as quickly as we can for our clients and, and then see what happens from there. Uh, yeah, the, 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 all's in the court of Department of Justice. Well, as I understand it, the rule is supposed to go into place uh, or into effect March 11th. March 11th, is there, that's right. Yeah. Is there no concern on the other side about the chaos this creates? You know, as people, as your clients, for instance, are sitting here waiting right. for the other shoe to drop on March 11th, um, well, you know, companies are going to start freezing up. Talk about a chilling effect. You know, is, right. the economy will be wobbly if California is any guide. Well, what you need to understand that this is not AB5, right? This rule, as I've mentioned, it's nebulous. It's vague. The Department of Labor is at pains to say, hey, we're not doing AB5. We're doing, we're doing something else. And so what's going to happen on March 11th, right? Are all these, there are 10 million independent contractor relationships or something in the United States. They're not all going to become illegal overnight, I don't think. Nobody really knows what's going to happen. We think there will be a major chilling effect on, uh, you know, on on the use of independent contractors, or that people will will change the way they use independent contractors. But as I said, the problem with this rule is that nobody knows what the rules are. A lot of businesses may just decide to to go ahead and take the risk and see what happens. My clients, customers, you know, some of them are are expressing concern. They may be reducing their use of independent contractors. Uh, but, you know, I think the result of this rule is going to, it's going to lead to a lot of uncertainty. It's going to lead to a bonanza for trial lawyers as well. But the ultimate, ultimate impact of this, I think, I think we're just going to have to wait and see. Uh, we're trying to put a stop to the rule and restore a much more stable status quo. 
but I think we're headed into a period of, of legal uncertainty for a lot of businesses that use uh, use independent contractors. And that's always great for the economy, uncertainty is. <laughs> Wilson that's Freeman right. of Pacific Legal Foundation, thanks so much for explaining all the detail here behind the new uh, Department of Labor rule uh, governing independent contractors. That's all the time we have today. Thanks for spending your time with us. You can always find Radio Free California on the National Review website, but would it be easier for you and better for us if you just subscribe? And of course, rate and review the show wherever you do subscribe and check our message earlier in this show about David Bonson's free book giveaway, autographed by David Bonson, the new book, full-time. Uh, so that uh, that wraps it up here. On behalf of my friend and co-host, David Bonson, we give thanks as ever to our session producers, Lucas Klaus, Brian Tong, and Glenn Hall, and to National Review podcast producer, Sarah Schutte. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks also to Metalachi. That's the LA-based mariachi and metal band for our music. La revolución continua en la semana próxima. Thank you.